Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. I'm your host, Professor Natalie Harpin. It is June, finally, so I am teaching summer school online, but it will still feel like a break because I won't be doing as much teaching as I do during the normal semester, so fall or spring, which will be nice. If you're in San Diego, I was just saying recently how we didn't I feel like we didn't really have a spring, right? Because summer officially starts in a few weeks. And even though the unofficial start to summer was Labor Day, excuse me, Memorial Day weekend. But um, I feel like we didn't really have a lot of spring weather, just really, really gloomy and gray and gross. So what? speaking of school, what I wanted to talk about today was the LA Times had an article that ran on May 26th and of this year, 2023, and it's titled Cal State Faces Budget Gap of $1.5 Billion, Report Recommends Tuition Hikes. And I wanted to talk about it because I think that it is very important to consider. Um, I know if you had me, I guess, recently, then this may not affect you as much by the time you either transfer or many of you probably will have graduated. But if you were younger, you know, these are things to think about, or even as you all plan um, how you would assist your own family members, like your children or nieces or nephews or, you know, people who are in school. And just, it's great to know what's going on, even if it doesn't affect you personally, which is what I always advocate. So it was basically saying that there was reports that were saying that only about 85% of the costs of running the CSU system, which I believe are 23 campuses, across the state of California, that they're only getting 85% of the money that they need to actually run efficiently and to run at what they're saying is just a minimum. So apparently it's a 14% disparity, and there was a 70-page report that was released, uh, the I guess, that same week that basically shares like where these gaps are coming from and what they think some of these solutions could be. And so when you look at the chart, it basically says that the total amount is um, about a 14% gap in what they need. So that breaks down also with instruction, apparently, which instruction would be from the faculty. And I'm sure, well, I don't know if staff would be considered part of that or institutional support. But either way, there's only it says that there's a 2% gap. Institutional support says an 8% gap. So again, they need another 8%. Other was a large 24%. And I was sort of wondering, well, what's in that other category, right? Because other could be anything. And, you know, many of you may know that There's a lot of things that happen on college campuses that don't have to do with students or the support. A lot of it can be building new projects on campus. It could be, you know, program funding. It could be building new dorms. It could be just anything, right? Others are a pretty big category, but it says that they only have 70%, excuse me, 76% of what they need and they need another 24%. Academic support, there's a 20% gap and student services has a 32% gap. So they're saying they have 68% covered. 
Now, of course, their proposal is to raise tuition, and they're saying that they can either do it with a 3% increase per year for incoming students or a 5% increase, which would only be one time for incoming students. And they said that with that, by 2030, they would be able to boost revenue by 16 to 24%, and they would have basically everything that they needed. Now, of course, they are acknowledging that many of the students who they service are facing economic issues as well, um, especially if you were a student or are a student they wouldn't have to tell you that, right? Most people understand that the already rising cost of tuition and just how much it costs in general to get, you know, certification programs is unsustainable. It has been unsustainable for decades. It's not necessarily new, but we also are dealing with other economic strains on families. And so increasing the tuition makes it harder for working class families and minority families from being able to afford what's already unattainable for them anyway. Now, we've talked already before about how many of these programs that used to offer, you know, sort of assistance, like with uh, the, the UC system being free, I've talked about that before, how that was when many people didn't have access to these schools. And I've talked before about how when a lot of people did get access to these schools based on gender, race, you know, ethnicity, that a lot of these programs started being taken away. And a lot of this was in the 80s. So it's interesting to me, me as a historian, that they're that they've already taken the easy route of saying, well, we need to raise tuition. Because then my question becomes, well, raise it for who, right? Are you only raising it on the in-state? Um, well, I guess not the residents, like who are just, just in-state, but, you know, then that is also the issue of it's already costing out-of-state students much more money per tuition. It's also costing international students much more. Are they also going to be having their, you know tuitions raised, I assume that they would because I can't see how they could just pinpoint like one specific group of students to raise tuition for. But another thing that makes me wonder is, well, how did it get that low in the first place? Like, where was it that you were facing a average of a 24% or excuse me, a 14% on average, but in some cases as high as a 32% gap between what you have and what you need? especially when we know that compensation for academic presidents and people at very high levels of academic instruction or, excuse me, on college campuses is very high and can be, you know, interesting when you learn just how much money some of these people make. And of course, they have a different job, right? Their job is, of course, to solidify funding and their job is to, you know, try to get grants and things like that. So they have a different function and that does require funding to help them do their job, right? And for them to be compensated for that job, I'm not saying that at all. But we do know in some cases that these are, these can be nationwide, very inflated salaries. And so I don't think that that's, you know, rude to say. Now, when it comes to the past and how the state used to do this, you know, changes in tax codes are 
an important thing to remember and consider because back when California did charge the very wealthy more of a you know like a higher tax rate, that money was used to help fund public education at at least the UC the UC level. And so the idea being that educating people was important and it was seen as a public good because they would go back and serve their communities in the state of California and serve people better who may not have had the privilege or the accessibility to get this education themselves. And that didn't mean that it wasn't competitive to get into the schools. It just meant that because once you graduated, you would help make your communities better in the state of California that was funding the education. It wasn't something that you needed to be responsible to bear the burden of paying for yourself because you as the product would help make the state better. So it was seen as an investment in the future of everybody in the state, if that makes sense. So I said all that to say, I don't, I just find it interesting how they're already going toward increasing tuition instead of raising taxes (laughs) on very wealthy people. And I'm not talking people who, you know, are making $200,000 a year or $80,000 a year. I'm talking about people who are making millions of dollars a year, like five, six hundred thousand dollars a year or more, right? Like raising the taxes on the very wealthy within the state. And then of course, funding it or using that money to fund education at the, in this case, at the CSU level, like we've done that before and it worked. Like it made things accessible, it made things better. And again, it didn't mean that it wasn't competitive to get in because, you know, many of you know, it's only gotten increasingly more competitive to get into four year schools in this state, especially in this state, because California is generally regarded as like the best public college system in the nation, Um, you know, like outside of being basically like the step under like the private institutions, I guess. So it was still competitive to get in. It's increasingly competitive to get in now. It would still be competitive, but why not use those tax dollars to fund this so that you can meet the gap that the schools need to function? You can also assist working class families and communities so that they don't have to be burdened by the price increases or even the price that it costs now, it just seems like it would be a win-win for everybody. And the tax rate in California and just across the um, the federal tax rate of very wealthy people, you know, in the 60s, like when the UC system was free, for example, was much higher than it would be raised to now. And I don't want any of you thinking, well, I don't want them to raise taxes before it, you know, affects me. Like, <laughs> we're not talking about you. We're talking about people who make very, very, very large amounts of money per year. Like just because you have a comma in your salary does not mean that you're one of those people. So please don't identify with the very wealthy. You're much closer to being, you know, just like me, one of the normal people (laughs) who's on the losing end of this seesaw that we find ourselves on with funding public goods and funding things that help life statewide in this case. And then, of course, the report also says that if these things don't take place, so I guess either the 3% annually or the one-time 5% increase, that they would be short by $100 million by the start of this school year. 
So I guess that means that they would plan on hiking the tuition before the fall of this year. I didn't see that written specifically, but if they're talking about already being behind, then it's something that I would assume would be implemented in the fall, like this incoming fall or maybe also next spring, so spring 24. But either way, I just thought that was really interesting and I wanted to bring it up. Like I said, if you're interested, the LA Times ran this article. Like There are plenty of resources that you could look up to read more about the history of tuition in California, specifically the history of you know tax codes, the histories of um, federal tax, federal income tax, state income tax. A documentary that I do like to show some of my students is Ivory Tower, which I think is really great. It came out, I want to say it came out probably in 2013, 2014. So it doesn't seem like it was almost 10 years ago, but I guess it is. It's a really good documentary because it does talk about the rising cost of tuition even back then and how it is an inaccessible product. And of course, we know that it's only gone up since then. And I like that in that documentary, they also talk about how student loans were really created as a valve to like release the pressure from those costs of rising education so that it didn't feel like it was as expensive as it is. But it is, right? Because, of course, when you borrow the money, just like some of you are learning, you know, in this next phase of your life, just about interest rates, right? So 6% interest isn't low, and oftentimes you're paying, I think the federal um, student loan is still at 6%. So 6% is not low. And often people, when they graduate from their programs or whatever you know certification that they're doing, they're paying on the interest, not the principal. And the principal is how much money you initially started out with. And then the interest is just something that accrues every month that you also have to pay off. So for many people, those things inflate, they balloon, and then they find themselves in the next phase of their life, you know, into their mid to late 20s, if they're, you know, traditional, quote unquote, traditional aged students, or even into their 30s and 40s after they've been graduated for a while, you know, they're trying to think about what they want to do the next phase of their life, if they want to move, if they want to start a family, where they want to, you know, sort of settle roots and start their careers. It can affect your credit score now. These are things that... I have heard that can be passed down. Well, and the documentary says this too. So it can be passed down to your children if you don't pay it off. And these are things that in the previous generation, they didn't have to worry about. I also think that's important because there is a lot of talk, you know, politically speaking about forgiving student loans and forgiving how much of student loans. And it's very interesting when people say, well, we shouldn't have to, well, not we, but I'm saying I guess I'm just confusing myself right now. But when they, the people who don't agree with student loan forgiveness, they say that amongst themselves, they shouldn't have to um, agree with people who chose to go to school and not have to pay their bills. Because from their point of view, they're like, well, I can't just not pay my bills or not pay my debt. When really, again, they're aligning themselves with people who that are not their peers. And I think that next to like race categorization and the creation of the racial caste in this country, the caste and the cult of middle class, I'm going to have to remember that, write that down, the cult of the middle class. That sounds good. <laughs> I was like, wow, Natalie. But 
I think like the creation of the cast of middle class is the second biggest ruse in this nation because you have a lot of people who, again, don't see the reality of the situation because all the imagery they have for what their life is or what they should or shouldn't have or what someone next to them should or shouldn't have or who should and shouldn't have things in society is based on imagery that is created by the very wealthy of our societies and of our nation and of our world. That's very, very important because it means that we're holding ourselves to a standard that does not really reflect our lived experience. And the same is, I mean, I'm saying that in a lot of ways, it's very similar to the creation of of a race as a caste system because people maintain what they believe to be their racial grouping and they align themselves politically. They align themselves idealistically, you know, whatever, with a group of people when, again, they may have more in common with other groups of people, right? Whether it be if they were or weren't considered white 5, 10, 20, 50 years ago, what does that mean? Because it doesn't actually tangibly mean anything on your day-to-day, like the things you have. It's all just about a social perception, And the same is said of, or the same happens with middle class, right? It's about the projection of assumptions that we have about what life is like within this group of people. So I'll have to like develop that more and then I'll make a podcast about that. But uh, it's June. So like I said, thank you for listening and I will see you on the next episode of Happy Hour History. Bye.